Hey everybody, Stephen here without Catherine and Jigger. The gang is off this week, and in place of our regular episode is an episode of The Interchange. This is uh, my other podcast that I co-host with Shale Khan, our senior vice president. And this week it's all about the world of startups. I actually hosted a roundtable discussion this week with key executives who run um, some of the, the biggest clean tech incubators around the country. So enjoy that. And in the meantime, can you do us a favor? If you like The Interchange, go subscribe to it. Go right now to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and click subscribe to The Interchange. If you really like The Interchange and The Energy Gang, go leave us a rating and review on iTunes for both of those podcasts. Uh, Ratings and reviews are the best way you can support the show. They help propel us up the rankings and get us more listeners and maybe even inspire more people to pay closer attention to this massive shift that's currently underway in energy. So thank you for that. We really appreciate the time. Uh, Also, a big thank you to Wonder Capital, our sponsor. Uh, Wonder Capital is an award-winning online investment platform that allows individuals to invest in solar energy projects across the U.S. So according to Wonder Capital, you can earn up to 8.5% annually and, of course, diversify your portfolio while combating global climate change. Go create an account for free. Support this show and support solar. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com slash gtm. That's wonder with a U, wondercapital.com slash gtm. Wonder Capital. Do well and do good. This is The Interchange, weekly conversations on the global energy transformation from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey in Boston. In this episode, a roundtable with leaders of top U.S. cleantech incubators. Much has been made of the venture capital lag in cleantech. You know, it'd be fair to call it a bust, even. While venture capitalists swoon over startups devoted to making people click on ads and stare at their phones longer... They're decidedly less interested in solving more difficult real-world problems, like transforming the energy sector. Yes, we've been talking about this trend for years now, and there still are a number of venture firms actively pursuing opportunities in energy decarbonization and decentralization. But startups are realizing they can't rely on venture capitalists like they used to. So where do they turn for support? This week I sat down with four execs from incubators around the country, to chat about the resources out there for entrepreneurs working on everything from apps to robotics in the energy sector. I was joined by Emily Kirsch, the founder and CEO of Powerhouse, an incubator and accelerator in Oakland, California. The kinds of companies that we support at Powerhouse are focused on the software side of what we call intelligent energy innovation. And what we mean by intelligent energy is solar, storage, demand response, grid integration, everything that's required to make this renewable energy economy possible. Emily Reichert, CEO of Greentown Labs, the biggest clean tech incubator in the country, based in Somerville, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. And our model is one in which we provide um, the lab and office resources that early stage clean tech hardware companies need to grow. Pat Sappensley, the Managing Director of Clean Tech Initiatives at the Urban Future Lab in Brooklyn, New York, which provides an incubator, a proof-of-concept center, and an educational program. At the Acre Incubator, we have a healthy mix of verticals, uh, some all focused, obviously, on climate change, some in mobility, some in smart cities, some in building energy efficiency, some in smart grid. And yes, they're largely software-focused 
and Beth Hartman, project manager at the Incubate Energy Network at the Electric Power Research Institute in Boulder, Colorado. Our mission is uh, to support the incubators and accelerators focused on clean energy entrepreneurs all across the country um, so that we can build stronger connections between uh, the, the groups. Each of these organizations offers a unique set of services for entrepreneurs. There's definitely some overlap and even some collaboration, uh, but they have their own unique models. So I asked for their take on the most crucial resources that member companies need. Emily Kirsch started off. Network is everything, and we've cultivated what I believe is the most robust network of clean energy leaders in the country um, based here in the heart of Silicon Valley in the San Francisco Bay Area. And that includes uh, solar leaders like Sunrun and SunPower, uh, global corporate leaders like GE, investors like Obvious Ventures, um, DBL investors, Shell Technology Ventures, and then business services like DLA Piper and Silicon Valley Bank. So basically we've created um, this incredibly robust ecosystem of support for intelligent energy startups. And ultimately, that's what this comes down to. It's who you know, and do you have a partner that can make the introductions that you need to get the pilot program going or the customer relationship or the investment? And everything we do at Powerhouse is to transfer the relationships that we've built to our entrepreneurs so that they can build their businesses as efficiently as possible. Pat Sappensley, how about you at Acre in the Urban Future Lab, um, what do you see as the most important services or, or, or mentoring that clean, clean tech startups can get? I would agree with Emily that the most important thing we can do for these companies is to make introductions. If you look at all of the incubators across the whole Incubate Energy Network, which we have done with Beth, uh, I think we have somewhere between an 80 and 95% success rate for our companies. That's compared with the normal startup success rate of closer to 10%. Wow, what, what, what does that mean exactly? Like that, that have actually raised funding, that have, what is the success rate um, measuring? In our case, it's companies that have remained in business since starting with us. And we go back to 2009. So these companies might have um, exited, but they might still be companies working to every day take watts off the grid uh, and build the clean energy ecosystem. They might have 10 employees, they might have 50 or 100 employees or more, but they're still alive and still working, which is quite different from the startup metrics elsewhere in the country. The incubation process puts them into a community of like-minded entrepreneurs, gives them introductions to channeled market partners, very often these companies are so small that an end user might say, I'm not keen on hiring a company that hasn't already been around for, for 50 years or 10 years. But by helping them find channel-to-market partners with one of the big corporates, we can get them out into market with a trusted partner so that their technology will get to market. Emily Reichert, I can imagine that networks are extremely important for Greentown Labs, um, but also you know, Pat identified corporate partners as well, which are probably crucial for these hardware companies that are looking for uh, infrastructure to utilize for companies with the capital spend to help work on these much more labor and capital intensive hardware technologies. What to you are the most important resources that your startups need? 
it is exactly right that most of these companies are going to need to work with a large corporate partner, whether it be a utility, whether it be an industrial company like a General Electric or a Siemens. They're going to need to build that partnership. And that is something that is very daunting for a young company. Um, as you can imagine, if you are a company of two to three people, maybe four, maybe 10, um, trying to even figure out where to enter a 10,000 or 20,000 or 100,000 person large corporation, uh, where do you start? And I think we've spent a lot of time and actually developed a program around helping companies to make that leap. Um, we call that program Greentown Launch. And it is a program that is basically an accelerator program within our incubator. We have about four to five companies go through it uh, per session. It tends to be sponsored by a corporate partner. And during that program, we help startups think about how they do the partnering that's going to lead to their success. So for example, how does a startup uh, particularly think about a complex sale to a corporate partner? How do they think about doing a successful pilot study? These would all be part of workshops that they do over the six month period. And then they have very intensive interactions with the corporate. And in our experience, this program after six months leads to investments, it leads to purchase orders, it leads to pilot studies, all of which are really moving startups and corporates into partnership faster. And that's really what we see as something that needs to happen, especially when you're developing clean tech hardware. You really need that partner to get to scale. Beth, you have the ability to see across this large network of incubators. How is what they're offering startups changing? And is that a reflection of um, you know, mark, the, the ease or difficulty in getting market traction? Um, I think I would say I agree with many of the points that um, Pat and Emily and Emily made about the importance of connections with corporate partners, um, utilities, and other large companies in the energy industry. Uh, we're really seeing um, an expansion of the the model of connecting um, these startups with those those large corporate partnership opportunities, whether it's through um, utilities and corporate partners working with existing incubator and accelerator programs more closely, or um, launching their own new uh, incubator or accelerator programs in clean energy, such as the the free electrons accelerator or um, Amron recently launched their own utility incubator program as well. And if every new connection helps, and I think continuing to build the network nationally as well as making more international connections is um, really something that we're seeing happening more and more often. Let's get into some of the difficulties in this space. Um, what you all have identified is the importance of corporates and you know, maybe utilities, uh, universities, other industry partnerships for bringing in new sources of funding. Of course, all those partners have always been important. But um, after the VC bubble popped in clean tech, they're becoming far more important than they ever were. So I guess the big question that everyone's gra grappling with is, is venture capital really the, the proper model for supporting clean tech? And um, if, if it's not, how can we leverage these other sources so that we're making up for that pretty severe gap in, in funding? Who wants to tackle that one first? This is Emily Kirsch. I'm happy to start. 
Uh, so being in the heart of Silicon Valley, we're really tapped into the venture community, especially in the intelligent energy space. And as one of the venture partners that we have the pleasure of working with, DBL Investors, um, Nancy Fund says, the tourists are out, meaning for the venture funds that were in clean tech before and have since left, they're gone and and they may or may not be coming back. But especially in the Bay Area, there is a group, including some that I mentioned earlier, like DBL and Andrew Beebe from Obvious Ventures and Bennett Cohen with Shell Tech Ventures. Uh, There is an incredible network of venture support that is not going anywhere. Tell um, me more about that yeah. that network because from an outsider's perspective, I'm over on the East Coast and you know I'm I'm interviewing VCs and so forth, but it seems like it has been shrinking. I, am I wrong in that? I mean, is that network still pretty robust today? I think the network of those who know that this transition is inevitable and it represents a trillion plus dollar industry, they're not going anywhere. For others that kind of dabbled and this isn't their core business, they they have left. And so I think the shrinking that you're seeing is a real one, but I don't think it's a permanent one. Uh, and those who are quarter the success of the industry and know it are, are staying in. That being said, ultimately, for the venture model to work in clean tech, there have to be exits that are interesting to the venture community. And so for us, being a for-profit being our, our success is dependent on our ability to serve the private sector, both startups and corporates, there has to be there has to be an interesting exit for them. And so continuing to exist as a startup, that's not enough. That's not an indicator of success, at least not from a venture standpoint. And so in order for a venture fund to be deemed successful, it has to return at least 3x. Um, and so that's something that when we look at startups, they may not be on a venture track, and that's okay. They still may have a very valuable product or service that they're adding that is contributing to the industry, and that can still represent a great return for us as early investors, but that may not always be applicable for the venture community. So for us, it's about being able to provide support for startups who may not fit the venture model, but also having the network of venture partners who are leaders in this space and being able to connect our startups to them if and when they're ready for that venture funding. As, as part of the phrase, the tourists are gone, I think we also have to look at who is coming in. And we've seen some interesting corporate strategic alliances lately. Uh, entities like Energy Impact Partners, where all of the LPs are utilities and people who are very involved in the energy sector. We're seeing funds like that one, like Infenergy out of Chicago. We're seeing... Uh, people who are more educated about this sector coming in because they understand it better, they are better investors. So while some portions of the venture capital world are going away, others are just starting now with a kind of a new and exciting approach. And the other thing to note is that VC is only one path to funding. And it's the path that's most funded on exit, which is not always the best strategy to focus on. It encourages companies sometimes to grow too quickly, and there are more patient forms of capital out there now. We've seen the advent of family offices and uh, entities like the Prime Coalition. Prime Coalition is a group of foundations based in Boston that are investing their PRI dollars, uh, program-related investment dollars, that they're allowed to invest in for-profit, mission-related entities. 
So these are more patient forms of capital. And then we're seeing other entities that are more focused on project finance and debt that are probably, you know, an additional way of funding that might be healthier for the company in the first place because they're less focused on fast exit. And I'd just add to that, that um, I think comments uh, that both Pat and Emily have made um, are right on. We definitely think that VCs are not the only path. And I think we probably have even fewer VCs in Boston than um, you do left in the Valley. So it's kind of a necessary thing to be thinking about other funding options. And so philanthropy and government and you know, different types of angel investors, all of those and corporate investors are all going to play a role. I think it's also important to emphasize, though, the mindset of the entrepreneurs themselves. And particularly, you know, everyone knows clean tech entrepreneurship, especially in hardware, is difficult. It's challenging. It, it, it and the VC model don't necessarily make sense. But I think entrepreneurs have come away from some of the bigger things that, uh, you know, some of the bigger, uh, I don't know how to say it in a nice way, debacles that are out there in terms of VC and clean tech like Solyndra and have taken a step back and looked at coming up with business models that make more sense, doing more with less, uh, being scrappier and pulling sources of money together uh, from different entities. And also thinking about how they run their companies in a way that is more efficient and and effective um, in terms of the capital that they do have. And I know that at Greentown Labs, we definitely think about how do we help hardware companies do things more efficiently? You know, can they contract out certain manufacturing services? Uh, Can we provide them with uh, services that help them meet investors and designers and other partners they need to move faster? Do they really need to build that factory or manufacturing plant or pilot plant? Could they partner with a corporate entity to, to do that? And so I think companies, startups are more efficient and thinking about using the capital that is available um, in, a, in a much more, in really a smarter way. Beth, I want to turn to you to talk about specific corporate partnerships. But Emily Reichert, I want to follow up on one thing you said there. And and you talked about potentially um, contract manufacturing, utilizing existing infrastructure that's out there. And I had an interesting conversation with a VC at the Clean Energy Trust Challenge uh, a few months ago, where I actually met Beth. And And I was talking to him about just the amount of vast infrastructure that's out there. It's similar to what Cyclotron Road is attempting to do. And that you can actually build a manufacturing company without really having to invest much in manufacturing at all. So how are you trying to leverage those resources? And and what should hardware startups know about what's out there today? Yeah, so I'd say we're definitely trying to help startups not have to build a plant or a pilot facility unless and until they absolutely have to because they have limited capital. We want to use that to build a team and build a company. So how do we do that? We start very early in the startup's progress, pretty much as soon as they walk in the door with some seed funds. We introduce them and have them work with a 25 or so year veteran of manufacturing to help them think through how they're actually going to make that product. And what we see is that these companies then are able to connect in 
through our network to a supply chain, to partners that are going to provide them, say, with space on a manufacturing floor and access to equipment. Um, they're going to help them think through that testing and evaluation, what materials should be used. And those questions that the startups need to answer about their product early on in the, manuf in the process of developing the product, I think is, is really critical to making something that can eventually be built on a large scale. And that is not something that these companies are using at a, or learning at a university. They really need this additional training and someone to help them work through that challenge. Because it's it's it really is a challenge and it can block you and it can make you spend a lot of money that you otherwise could have been spending on a team and growing the company in other ways. So we work really hard to help startups do that more efficiently. Beth, we can't have this conversation about partnerships without talking about electric utilities, which are increasingly setting up. Um, their own venture arms, their own incubators in-house. They're really interested in figuring out how they can acquire or partner with um, startups that are already having an impact on their, their grid operations. So you're there in the Electric Power Research Institute. You see the evolution of this type of model firsthand. What are utilities specifically doing to um, either partner with existing incubators or build their own or just invest in startups? Yeah, so there are um, several things that utilities are doing. And first, I just wanted to um, kind of quickly comment a little bit on some of the remarks that everyone made about efficient use of capital and um, going back to something that Emily Kirsch said earlier about kind of the importance of thinking of software and hardware and combining those and the exciting opportunities that you get when you do that um, for s solutions that can be potentially more rapidly deployed and might be a better fit for the VC model or efficient use of funds. Um, you know, we've spent a long time developing really great hardware like solar panels and batteries. Um, and now we're, we're trying to kind of deploy these solutions as quickly as possible. Um, and this is where it, it starts to get really important to think about software and hardware together and innovative financing models and working collaboratively with large utilities and corporate partners um, and uh, sort of taking the solar panels and the electric vehicles and getting them to communicate with each other better and networks and sensors and all of these things. So I think that in some ways this um, this is a really exciting time for for capital to be deployed into the space. Um, and then the corporate partners element is obviously critical. Um, we've seen utilities deploying new investment funds, as Pat mentioned, energy impact partners um, or venture arms like Constellation Ventures with Exelon, launching their own new incubator and accelerator programs or partnering with those in their, in their regions of the country. Um, and I, I think I'm also seeing a, a stronger trend towards utilities and corporate partners really seeing the startups as um, valuable valuable partners and, and true collaborative opportunities for them to um, not only find you know new interesting technologies and innovative um, business model solutions, but bringing that that intense spirit of um, innovation into their culture. Uh, there's a lot of disruptive innovation happening in the energy industry right now. So um, really, one of the best ways to try to manage that is to have a lot of people on your team who are creative and innovative thinkers that will find new solutions to new problems as they arise, um, rather than just kind of reacting to them. So uh, I think the, the large companies are increasingly 
thinking of the startups as really genuine partners and a great opportunity to transform their company culture and be proactive about disruptive innovation. Um, and you can see, obviously, the increasing engagement with incubators and accelerators and how some of those more um, proactively innovative utilities are starting to get really kind of front page recognition for it, like with the big New York Times piece this weekend on Green Mountain Power working um, with Tesla and developing some really innovative programs there. I, I want to get to some of the potential sticking points with those relationships. Um, but first, I want to go back over to Emily Riker because she unfortunately needs to leave us in a few minutes. So I want to get a couple of closing thoughts from her before we move on to the rest of the discussion. You know, this market is so much harder than, say, consumer tech, uh, even in the software space, but particularly in the hardware space where you're operating. Um, it's, it's abundantly clear that selling to incumbent energy customers or creating an entirely new market for a product in the energy sector is probably one of the most difficult challenges uh, that anyone can think of. So how aware of that challenge are the entrepreneurs you work with? And I guess more importantly, how do you prepare them for that reality? Um, what, what, what words of advice do you have for startups that are trying to enter this space? So I think that most of our entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs I know generally are pretty savvy with their knowledge of the challenges that exist in clean tech and clean tech hardware in terms of funding, in terms of, you know, current headwinds on the federal front, but they are really doing it because there's, I think for most of the entrepreneurs we work with, there's more than one bottom line that they're thinking about. So I'd say that our community of entrepreneurs is filled with people who actually want to make a broader impact than just building a company to make money. And so I think that that's what drives them. And I think you can, you can definitely pursue both goals at once. Um, we are at Greentown, a mission-based organization. Uh, we're a public benefit corporation. And so we wear our mission proudly on our sleeves. When we interview companies to come to Greentown Labs, that's something that we are looking for. Um, we're looking for kind of a mission orientation and to have the entrepreneurs be interested in being part of a community where you're really trying to solve common big global problems. And we find that almost all of the entrepreneurs who fill out our application are thinking about their tech in this way. They're not just thinking about how do I get an exit at this, you know, multiple. They're thinking about how can I solve something big? And so I think if you have that as your guiding force, you could keep coming back to it whenever things are really tough. And by being in an incubator like the one that Emily runs and Pat runs and I run and others in our network run, you are then surrounded by a community of people that is trying to do the same thing and who is having, who are having those struggles every day. And I think that's a lot of what keeps people going. It's knowing that you're not alone. You are trying to do something big. It's hard. And Everyone around you knows it, and they want you to succeed. And I think that that is what keeps our entrepreneurs going. And so it's not necessarily words of advice that I have for entrepreneurs. It's find your community. Find those supporters who are really backing you and 
figure out how to spend more time with them because those communities are out there and ready to support entrepreneurs. Support for this podcast comes from Wonder Capital. You know, we're talking all about startups in this episode, and a lot of startups are created because of an obsession. When Wonder was co-founded in 2013 by CEO Brian Bersick, he and his team obsessed over solar soft costs, particularly the cost of financing commercial projects. And what we heard again and again from different players, uh, government, industry, and, and NGO, was in the commercial space, financing had been incredibly difficult. And once we honed in on that in late 2013, we've been working on that since. Wonder Capital is simple. It's an online investment platform that connects lenders and solar project developers, helping streamline financing for commercial PV and helping investors earn up to 8.5% annually. It addresses a very distinct pain point in the market. And that's where our team's software expertise comes in, because we've automated so many of these processes that we see some of our competitors that like bigger projects doing manually. And so Wonder can profitably do projects as small as 100,000 or 200,000, and then we'll service up to 2 million because we see at about 2 million, the market starts to get really efficient. Um, so our sweet spot, our average project size is about half a million. And our sweet spot is kind of that quarter million to $1.5 or $2 million range where, uh, again, we've seen the market is really poorly served. So do you see Wonder as a software company first and a conduit for capital second? How do you describe yourselves exactly? Yeah, so um, I think of us as a, as a marketplace that brings two parties together that want to connect, but that the, the plumbing, if you will, is too inefficient to do so. So, you know, we have great businesses through our installer partners that want to put up half million dollar systems and they will save money from day one. Um, and there are a lot of people on the capital market side that would love to make, you know, the projected eight and a half percent of our most recent funds, um, but aren't going to go do the work to find that half million dollar system. And so the software is really just the conduit tissue, if you will, that allows us to connect that business who wants to put up solar on the roof uh, or, you know, in some cases, ground mount um, with, you know, the large players in capital markets all the way down to the individual investors we service that are excited about those returns. So while the software is the key piece that allows us to connect those parties, we've got an entire team working with our installer partners and businesses to make sure that's a really great experience. Um, and then also we have a capital markets team to make sure our investors are really well informed um, and we're continuing to grow the money that we can then go loan to businesses. So the software is this key piece that connects our two groups, um, but I would say that we um, really have to be good at all three, uh, to, to be honest, to, to execute the business. Armed with those teams, and its software of course, Wonder has made 53 solar loans already in 2017 and met its annual return targets for investors. So if you're a developer looking for project finance, or if you're an investor looking to diversify your portfolio and earn up to 8.5% annually, check out Wonder Capital. You can begin investing with as little as $1,000. And best of all, Wonder doesn't charge any investor fees. To learn more, create an account for free at wondercapital.com gtm. That's wonder with a U, wondercapital.com gtm. Wonder Capital, do well and do good. Let's take a couple steps back now and get back to the partnerships and funding question. And I, I think the partnerships with the utilities one is particularly interesting, just given how much interest we're seeing from the utility space. Um, but uh, Emily, it, it you were saying that you don't think that utilities are engaging this space as much as they could be. Yeah, 
utilities are missing out on an opportunity to get access to products and services that startups, including those in Powerhouse and those in all the incubators that we're representing, are creating. And we get an email at least a month from an international utility like Statoil or Total or Shell looking for ways to partner. And we don't see that from utilities here in the US or energy companies in the US for that matter. So I think there's an opportunity for them to engage in a way that they haven't yet. And the door is open. Uh, they are more than welcome. And we encourage them to to join us. We hosted a panel at Intersolar last month called The Establishment and the Disruptors. And it was an opportunity for startups like Ohm Connect, Prosumer Grid, Utility API, to have a direct conversation with the utility that's in our own backyard, PG&E, and Dan Halperin, the director of corporate strategy, who self-described as the representative dinosaur in the room, um, was willing to engage in that conversation. And that's really the first step. But we don't see many utilities willing to take that first step. And if anything, we've actually had some that have come after startups in Powerhouse that are building products and services that are disruptor, disrupting to their models. Um, I uh, I wanted to agree. I, I agree with Emily's point about how there is a huge opportunity for utilities um, to engage more with incubators, accelerators, and entrepreneurs and help um, drive innovation in the industry. And I think she also uh, correctly pointed out that a lot of international utilities outside of the U.S. are um, kind of on the uh, leading edge of, of engaging and driving innovation in this way. Um, I, I know a bunch of different examples. Anel is working really closely with the Elementor, Elemental Accelerator in Hawaii, and I think they also work closely with TEPCO in Japan. Um, actually, EPRI's membership is about 30% international, so we work with utilities all over the world, and we're seeing a lot of them do really leading, innovative things. Um, I think Electricité de France has a lab in the in the Bay Area, and Anel also recently started partnering with a group at Berkeley there called Citrus. Um, and then I mentioned before the, the free electrons accelerator program works with about 10 utilities, um, many of them international, including, um, the utility in Ireland and, uh, TEPCO again. We also are trying to build stronger international connections, um, kind of through almost a network of networks where we're connecting the incubate energy network groups with groups in Europe and Asia, Latin America, um, Africa and other places around the world. We, we formed um, a collaboration effort with the Inno Energy Network of Clean Energy Accelerators in Europe last year, and we're working closely with New Energy Nexus, which is the group that runs Free Electrons out of California, to um, try to build stronger connections with clean energy incubators in Asia and other places around the world um, and engage with those groups and connect them with international utilities for the opportunity to do more, more innovation in the industry. So, Pat, uh, over to you. Um, can you talk about other partnerships? I mean, wh what is unique about a university-affiliated program, uh, and, and what kind of resources and opportunities does that provide startups? We get enormous resources out of being part of NYU's Tendon School of Engineering. We have rent that's provided by the school. The HR function is provided by the school. We have engineers and residents whenever we need them for whatever purpose. We have educational opportunities that we can offer, such as the Clean Start program, so that we start to create an ecosystem around climate change here in New York City. Much of our funding comes from NYSERDA, 
that's New York State's Research and Development Authority. Um, we have, in addition to them, we have a couple of corporate partners, Wells Fargo, National Grid, a few others, who are very helpful. And that is enough for us to operate without then putting us in the position of being less aligned with our companies than we might be if we were profit-oriented and taking equity in the companies. When we look at a company for entering the incubator, we do something very similar to the venture capital uh, review process. I used to be at a company called Good Energies, a, a VC. We bring in experts from the outside. These are often the utilities, and that's one of our utility partnerships. We help them by bringing them into our review process. But we're able to review these companies more based on whether we think we can help them, whether we think they are coachable, whether we think they can get a massive amount of megawatts off the grid with an N. And we can focus on that more than on by having equity in this company in the future, are they going to be able to fund our OPEX? I don't want to have to think that way. I want to think about whether they can maintain top-line revenues that are healthy for the ecosystem of clean energy in New York. I want them all to grow to be companies that have 30, 50, 100 million top-line revenues at least. But that's probably not enough for a venture capital fund. It's probably not enough if you're looking at equity to support your own operating expenses. So it, it would turn our head to be a for-profit incubator. And I'm very grateful to NYU and NYSERDA that we don't have to think that way. It, do, you, do, you like, uh, do you like the transition from being able to evaluate companies in that way uh, compared to your previous life in the VC world? Well, I've loved both of them. I'm one of those people who's happy doing anything I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I have, I have really loved this. And actually adding to the mix, are they coachable? Are they, are they flexible? Do I think I can help them? Is a very important metric um, that, of course, we had to consider in the VC world. But I think it's even more important now, and I, I like having to think that way. Emily, how does that differ from the way you evaluate companies? Yeah, we take a very market-specific approach that the only way these startups are going to have impact is if they can scale and uh, are having our success tied to the success of our startups is something that we think is healthy for the economy and for the clean energy industry as a whole. So, so yeah, our, our approach is very much not an academic one. There are a lot of programs, including um, New York Acre and, and Pat's program that, that have that academic focus. And from an R&D standpoint, that's really important. But when it comes to commercialization, our greatest indicator for success of our startups um, is not, you know, whether they're, they can be coachable and that's great, um, but they, they need to be making revenue. And, um, and that's our biggest indicator of whether they're doing well. It's not necessarily how much money they raise. It's not about, you know, whether the venture community deems them as successful because we've seen, especially recently, that that's not always the best indicator of success, but our customers paying for their product. Um, that's, that's really the greatest indicator. And we put a lot of emphasis on our startups getting to profitability so that they're not dependent on venture, but they're also not dependent on uh, grant or kind of academic sources of capital that um, that are important for for 
you know, certain types of companies, especially in that R&D and hardware space. Um, but ultimately, this industry needs to stand on its own. And that's something that we prioritize with our model. This brings me to a bigger question that I'm sure a lot of startups are asking themselves. What program is the right one for my team? How do you choose the appropriate accelerator or incubator for their specific needs, you know, maybe depending on um, funding source or geographic range or proximity to customers? Um, Beth, what do you think? How do you how do you choose the right program? Yeah, I think that's obviously a really important question for all entrepreneurs to be asking themselves um, and and looking at the different programs available to them um, around the country, whether they're interested in kind of a more um, accelerator style program that many people are more familiar with because of the popularity of programs like Techstars um, or or something um, like Powerhouse, a combination incubator or accelerator program um, focused on, on the profitability question. Um, or maybe a university-affiliated program or, or lab-affiliated program like we discussed. It's, it's all kind of about the, the stage and the corporate partners that they're looking to connect with through those incubator and accelerator programs. Geography is important consideration for entrepreneurs as well, and that's um, part of the benefit of the Incubate Energy Network um, that we mentioned earlier in terms of helping make referrals for companies looking to break into new markets if they're wanting to go into a different city in the U.S., um, the incubators in the network can help to make those connections and find a good place for them to land. Um, at, or if they're looking to make more international connections um, for U.S. companies looking to go global or, or those for other parts of the world wanting to come um, to the U.S. Um, and then as far as customer proximity, you mentioned um, a lot of the incubators partner with the local corporates and utilities in their area. And having um, EPRI helping to run the network also helps bring all of our utility members to the table from all around the world. So Emily, if, if a startup is on a path to failure, um, how do you know it? Yeah. And that's the sad reality of all of this. And I think those of us on the podcast, we love what we do. We love it when startups succeed. And the reality is most startups that try fail and I think being comfortable with failure is not easy, but important. And, so for startups that that are on a path to failure, if there isn't a clear remedy or pivot that can be made, then then failure is okay, and uh, that's that's just the name of the game. For those that have the opportunity to make a pivot, especially for the kinds of startups that are in powerhouse that begin with us so early, of course they're going to pivot. They should. You know, it's um, in Guy Kawasaki's book Art of the Start. He says if you're not totally embarrassed with what you initially put out as your first product, then you launch too late. You know, there's this idea of like, get something out there, get actual users trying it, testing it, giving you feedback early. And uh, so for startups that can take that feedback, uh, make pivots as needed. And that's really where, where startups, especially in the energy space, have such an unfair advantage relative to incumbents. You know, the incumbents whether they're just traditional energy companies or utilities or even um, renewable companies that have grown um, to, to be some of the biggest players in the space, they don't have the luxury of being as nimble and flexible as startups are. And so for the entrepreneurs that are in powerhouse, every company here has, and especially those that we've invested in, have seen a market opportunity to improve something that that hasn't been working and to make a process you know, better, faster, cheaper, and um, and so if they're able to do that, then 
then, you know, great. If they're, if they're, if they're cost, ultimately, if their customers are paying for their product, then that's, that's what counts. And if they're not, then there's no infusion of capital that will get a startup that doesn't have the right product market fit to succeed. So Pat, do you have maybe a different set of standards by which you judge um, failure or coming failure or problems for a company as you know, part of the not-for-profit university-affiliated program? Well, there's failure and there's picking yourself up and learning from that failure and doing something different. We have one company here, and I, I know we're not supposed to advertise the company, so I'll try to do this anonymously, but we have one company that pivoted three times. Uh, and, and what you need to do when you're evaluating these companies is to evaluate the entrepreneur themselves rather than the technology they're coming in with. This company started with wind data analytics, found that that was a very crowded space, pivoted to a vertical access wind turbine. That didn't work out because the mechanics of the turbine were not were less than perfect. And he was flexible enough, intelligent enough, and had learned enough along that path so that he then pivoted to a very successful new business model, which is to apply the power purchase agreement thinking to small wind. So the company has grown tremendously, but it took quite a while. That was a three or four year process. When he came in, he was a tiny little one person company. By the time he left, he was, I think, 15 people and, and growing now, really growing strong. So I think you have to judge not the technology, but the entrepreneur, because the technology will change. Uh, because of this encouragement of the pivot, it would be difficult to say to any company, you must leave after two years. I think each time they pivot, they're entitled to some kind of a reset. So we do start them over again. There have been companies here that have, been, that have stayed longer than, than two years for that reason. But I think it contributes to their overall success, and we help them every step of the way each time they change. What I want to ask you all, what are the most common misconceptions that startups might bring to your respective organizations? And, and what are the things that, that you think entrepreneurs bring to the table that they, they know they don't know, like the, the common questions that they have? So misconceptions and things that they're, they're searching for or trying to explore about the process. So I'm happy to take that. This is Pat. We have seen companies come to us fairly often assuming that we are simply the pathway to successful venture capital funding. And I really need them to focus first on, am I providing the solution that the market is asking for? Uh, do I have the right team? <laughs> um, how should I go about uh, working on my sales strategy? There's so much more that I want to work with them on than simply going out and finding the right funder. Because unless they have all of that stuff nailed down, the right funder is not going to be interested in them. So really what we need to do is help them grow their business so that they are attractive to a funder before we can just go out and find them a funder. It's, it's not quite as simple as they often think. Uh, agreed with what Pat said. And the most common question that we get given our network is, can you introduce me to such and such, whether that is a potential investor or potential customer? If it is 
a potential customer or somebody that they're just looking for feedback on the product from, um, or if they are ready to actually get paid customers, then we can make those intros. If it is an introduction to a potential investor that they're seeking, whether it's venture capital or angels or other types of funding, there are certain things that we require before we make those intros. And those things include uh, an investor-ready pitch deck, financial model, executive summary. We have a list of 80 questions that investors will probably ask you in the course of a pitch, which you need to have prepared answers to, um, including things. And then in addition, things like an angelist profile, a crunch-based profile. So things that any potential investor or customer are going to check for, a credible website. You know, you'd be surprised um, how many companies come in and, and they're early enough that it's actually to be expected that they they don't have all of these, these things ready, but we ensure that they do before we start making those intros. But the most common question is absolutely, can you introduce me to X? I just wanted to say that I completely agree with the points that people have made about the importance of, of team and um, you know, technology matters, but it's possible to pivot the technology and the team's coachability and track record of success and responding well to feedback um, is so important. I think I've heard uh, folks from from Techstars and other groups say their kind of unofficial model is team, team, team idea. So it's a, it's a pretty big deal, I think. So the three of you work with a lot of different types of startups and uh, entrepreneurs who come from a bunch of different backgrounds. So you have this unique window into our possible energy future. Is there a particular sector that you're most bullish on? Emily Kirsch, I'll start with you. Energy is moving from this dirty, centralized, century-old system to one that is distributed and decentralized, and inherently that lends itself towards democratizing both the production but also the consumption of energy. And through the startups that are at Powerhouse, they are enabling that transition to this distributed, decentralized, and democratized energy economy. And technologies that are getting the awards for buzzword of the year of 2017, like blockchain, have some of the most uh, vast implications for for achieving that goal. So one of the startups we invested in recently called the Sun Exchange is using the blockchain and using cryptocurrency or digital currency to finance solar CNI projects in emerging markets. And so they're, they've funded three projects already. They're raising capital for a fourth. Um, anyone around the world can can contribute to not contribute to invest in uh, an energy plant and receive a 10% return over the next 20 years by helping a wildlife refuge center or a school um, or a microgrid in a village go solar. And so there are these incredible technologies like blockchain that are being developed primarily for financial services, but startups like SunX are applying them to the energy space. And so what I'm most excited about in the sector that I'll continue to focus on here at Powerhouse is looking at how how software and how financial technology can be applied to energy in a way that gets us to this distributed, decentralized, and democratized energy economy. Pat, how about you? Yeah, this is maybe not as exciting as you are hoping for an answer, but we are seeing data analytics as an enabling technology for absolutely everything. I just keep scratching my head and saying, how did we ever live without these deep data analytics? I have companies coming into the incubator all the time now that are providing the 
analytics that enable anything else to happen on the grid. For instance, uh, our, our battery, uh, we, have, we have two storage companies, actually three, but uh, one of them is looking only at data analytics for the battery industry so that you can always compare one battery chemistry to another battery chemistry if you're a grid operator. You can then look at how batteries are being charged and discharged and how that affects their life in that hour or over years and take that information to an insurance company and get an insurance plan or to a project finance entity and get project finance because you have an understanding of how this is going to operate. How did we do any of these things before there was battery data analytics? We have another company that's doing something similar for energy use intensity for buildings, where we're all being told cities and governments are requiring energy use intensity to be collected, but then what's being done with it? How can we clean that data, make that data comparable across one building and another? Who's using what for square feet? Is somebody using gross square footage and somebody else using net square footage? How can we regularize that? Well, with data analytics. Uh, we have a company that's doing it with agriculture, indoor agriculture. Um, so it's a very necessary enabling technology that's, you know, it's not new, but it's new to this industry and it's absolutely necessary. I'm seeing it everywhere. Beth, you have the final word. Wow, no pressure. <laughs> so um, I, I completely agree with um, Emily and Pat, both uh, kind of pointing out the importance of of data software kind of networking together um, all of these these different pieces of hardware that are on our energy system, um, building on top of the existing grid in this country or, or skipping over the grid entirely in some other areas and bringing that distributed, decentralized, democratized energy um, to everyone. It's, it's a, I think, really exciting time in the industry where we spent a lot of time building up um, the grid and the hardware with everything from solar to batteries and um, the mobility stuff that's happening now. It's, it's a really exciting time. And so uh, I think it's great to see um, enabling the deployment of these technologies faster, some really exciting partnerships between in industry incumbents and incubators and startups, um, as well as um, the, the partnership model I mentioned earlier of some utilities like Green Mountain Power working with Tesla or um, Excel's working with Panasonic to build out a smart city um, program here in, in Denver, Colorado. So these interesting partnership models for the industry, I think, are evolving and really helping um, to deploy the solutions that we need faster with software and financial technology innovation applied to the, to the hardware and energy. So corporate partnerships, decentralization, and data analytics, I think we can all agree that uh, those are some of the most important trends shaping our future. That was Beth Hartman, who is the project manager at the Incubate Energy Network at the Electric Power Research Institute. She came to us from Boulder. Thanks, Beth. Thank you, Stephen. It was great to be here. And Pat Sappensley is the managing director of Clean Tech Initiatives at the Urban Future Lab uh, in New York City, the hub at the NYU School of Engineering. Thank you, Pat. Thank you so much, everyone. It's great to talk to you all. And Emily Kirsch is the founder and CEO of Powerhouse, an incubator and accelerator based in Oakland, California, focused on uh, clean tech software. Thanks, Emily. Thanks, Stephen. Power on. And of course, we had Emily Riker, the CEO of Greentown Labs, 
uh, based here in the Boston area in Somerville. A great conversation. Thanks to all. You can find out more about each of these organizations in the show notes. Uh, Shale Khan and I will be back next week. In the meantime, give us a rating and review on iTunes. Help others find this show. Uh, If this is a great resource for you, pass it along to your friends and your colleagues. Uh, Next week, we will be exploring uh, experiences in nuclear energy uh, and, and what can make the nuclear industry potentially more innovative. What can it learn from other industries? In the meantime, send us your ideas for shows, your feedback to podcasts at greentechmedia.com. I'm Stephen Lacey, and this is The Interchange, conversations on the global energy transformation from Green Tech Media. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.